Hello friends, brothers and sisters back in Norwich. It's wonderful to be able to be here and uh, share a few words with you once again. Me and, uh, and Debbie and the children are so, so sad that we can't be journeying back up to see you in wonderful Norwich where we had 10 of the happiest years of our lives. It really would be so good to be able to meet you in proper fellowship, put arms around dear friends and uh, give you all a hug. And sadly, COVID-19 has put paid to all of that. But we would have loved to have come back and doubtless had uh, an awesome bring and share meal or something like that. I've been asked to speak on this Palm Sunday about a very, very moving passage of scripture. John 19, starting at verse 17. And uh, as you heard in the reading, it is a wonderful and an incredibly moving piece of scripture. The best way to come to any scripture is to come with great reverence and with prayer and to ask the Lord, what do you want to reveal through your precious word? I did that when I came to this marvelous passage. I prayed and I do believe the Lord has given me something to share with you all here today. He gave me the number four. So welcome inside everyone. This is our front room and uh, it's a little bit warmer than out in our rear garden. The first reflection that we're going to consider is this, four words on the cross. In verse 19, we read this. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. If you look at depictions of the crucifixion in Roman Catholic churches often, you will see a sign above Jesus's head and it will have four letters on it. I-N-R-I. That is the Latin translation of the inscription of the four words and that means very very simply Jesus Nazareth King Jews. Obviously the other words have been put in to make the sentence make more sense. When Pilate writes those words it's not the first time in the precious word of God that we hear them. We hear those words spoken at the very beginning of the accounts of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel the wise men arrive, they see King Herod and they say that they want to see the king of the Jews. Now on both occasions when the wise men say it and when Pilate writes it, it prompts absolute fury. Of course when King Herod heard those words spoken, it made him so angry that he went and slaughtered vast numbers of innocent children, a mind-boggling atrocity. And when the Jewish authorities that detested Jesus heard those words, they were very, very angry. And they, they asked Pilate to change them. This is what they said. You can follow this in verse 21. The chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. But rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Now, you may ask yourself, what was it that caused such fury in these men when they heard this phrase, the king of the Jews? The king of the Jews 
meant very, very simply Jesus was their king. And they vehemently denied that that was true. They shouted deep within their hearts, he's not my king. And that, my brothers and sisters in Christ, is a terrible thing to cry, either in your heart or out loud. Every single person on this planet who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and who accepts him as their saviour, when they see Jesus, they cry in their hearts, that's my king. That's my king. The issue with saying that's my king for some people is that they love to be the master of their own destiny. They love to say, I did it my way and I do it my way. I'm the boss of me. I think it's quite a, a tragic truth that the most popular song in crematoria to be played at funerals is I did it my way, a final defiant statement. No one is king of me. And yet we who follow Jesus say with joy in our hearts, Jesus Christ is my king and I love him. There were four soldiers who crucified Jesus. Let's read from verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. So at its most basic, the reason why the soldiers were dividing up Jesus's clothes and why they were anxious not to tear the garment that they could not divide easily seems to be this. They wanted to wear those clothes or they wanted to sell them and someone else was going to be wearing them. Either way, that's a pretty grisly thought because there at the crucifixion stood many people who loved Jesus, including his own mother. The thought of looking at the men who have done this terrible thing to your son, dividing his clothes, is almost too horrible to think of. Nonetheless, within the next few days, weeks, and perhaps for years, there were people walking around the Holy Land, wearing Jesus's clothes. For me, I think that this is a very symbolic thing because there are people even today who wear Jesus's clothes, but they are not Jesus. I'll say that again because it's an important point. There are people who wear Jesus's clothes, but when you look beneath them, they're not Jesus. Who do I mean? I mean the person in Christian authority who uses that authority and that power to abuse people. He's wearing Jesus's clothes, but underneath them it is not Jesus. The person who looks at the precious scriptures that the Lord has given us and chops and changes and gets rid of all the stuff they don't like virtually creates a new 
religion. And then they attach Jesus's name on the front, wearing Jesus's clothes, but not Jesus. When we look deeper, the loveless fanatic who tries to use faith to justify horrors in this world like racism and uh, myriad other hate-filled and awful things, wearing Jesus's clothes, but not Jesus. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15, Jesus said this, he said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves at the very dawn of new life and every wonderful thing that the risen Lord will bring. There is a nasty germ of falsehood that begins with those gambling soldiers and it echoes out and finds itself among those who would wear Jesus's clothes but really are not him. Brothers and sisters, we must immerse ourselves in scripture always and be on our guard against those ravenous wolves in lamb's clothing. Four absent brothers. There were a number of people who were conspicuous by their absence at the crucifixion. All of Jesus's closest male followers were not there, with the exception of course of John. And there were four other people missing too. James, Joseph, Judas and Simon, Jesus's half-brothers. In Verse 26, we read this. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his house. Now, you might wonder why Jesus said that and did that. His own siblings were not there, so perhaps he was disappointed by this fact. And he thought, well, John has turned up. John can have this great honour. Can you imagine anything more wonderful than being asked to care for the mother of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ? However, I don't entertain for a moment that this was some kind of uh, an action motivated by ire that the brothers hadn't turned up. Rather, I think it was demonstrating something which is a beautiful truth, something that Jesus welcomes you and I into, as well as John. Let's pop back to Matthew's Gospel just briefly. And we find in chapter 12, uh, a moment when Jesus's mother and brothers turn up and try to collect him. They think he's gone mad. And they think things are going out of control. Well, in Matthew chapter 12, we read these words. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? 
and stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I look at this as a beautiful welcoming into the intimate family of Jesus. As he says, behold your mother. How marvellous this moment is for John and how marvellous it is for us as well. Because all of us who accept Jesus as Lord, all of us who strive to follow after him and to be obedient to the Father, can name Jesus as friend and brother as well as Lord and Saviour. Isn't that marvellous? My friend Jeff Warren, who is the musical director at St Andrew Street Baptist Church, often prays in a service and he ends his prayers more often than not with these words. For we ask it in the name of our friend and our brother Jesus. The first time I heard him do that, I'd not heard people pray like that very often before. And it was a joyful reminder then and every subsequent time that I heard Jeff that Jesus is my friend and my brother, as well as my Lord and my King. Four prophecies fulfilled. John, who is writing the words that we've heard this morning, is an eyewitness to all of the events of what we today call Good Friday, that culminated in the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. I would go even further and say John was much more than an eyewitness, he was the eyewitness. And John himself goes to great lengths to emphasise this point. In verse 35 he says this, He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. And what a day that was. What sights and sounds John must have experienced. The sights and sounds of his Lord and Saviour being scourged, beaten by the Roman soldiers with a lead-tipped whip, uh, a form of torture so vicious that skin was torn from your body, mind-bogglingly awful. He witnessed three people being crucified, nails being hammered through their hands and feet, he heard their cries. He listened to the abuse of the people who had come to mock Jesus and say terrible things. He witnessed all of these things. And finally, he saw Jesus being impaled with a spear and the horror of blood and fluid flowing from his riven side. And in the midst of all of that, amazingly, John's tone as he writes these words is almost happy. He seems to be strangely positive about what is going on. And the reason is that in verse 24, in verse 28, in verse 36 and verse 37, he points out that prophecies are being fulfilled. He keeps using a similar phrase. This happened that, that prophecy might be fulfilled. It's wonderful in John's mind. What John 
is looking at is to be sure horrific but he realizes and i'm sure it is the action of the holy spirit opening his mind to this great truth that what he's seeing is not just a horror he is seeing the promises of god being fulfilled and coming true he is receiving that blessed reassurance that what jesus has said will happen is happening what god himself has said will happen through his scriptures is happening god's promises are true john finds this thrilling even in the midst of the horror god's promises are true when we can grasp that point we find ourselves in a joyful place because his promises for us are simply wonderful just like john st paul reached the same conclusion god's promises are true and speaking of jesus christ he wrote down in his second letter to the church in corinth what is honestly one of my favorite pieces of scripture of all time it's second corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20 let me read it for you for all the promises of god find their yes in him that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to god for his glory i'll read it for you just one more time for all the promises of god find their yes in him that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to god for his glory this is a truth that it's a joy to discover and i want to finish this short talk by mentioning uh, an experience that i had when i was an undergraduate something which has remained with me for many years and been a source of incredible comfort <clears throat> it all happened when i went to visit a friend a dear friend in southampton and i spent a day or two in her company and i then wanted to journey home to my parents house her grandfather lived pretty close to my parents and he was visiting the family home at the time and so being a little bit cheeky i asked him for a lift and it was in this way that i got to know the reverend walter mason a wonderful man and someone who i found to be an inspiration on every occasion that i met him so i got into his car and he drove me back towards my home and as we drove along he was chatting to me very very sadly he had recently lost his wife she had passed away and i asked him a little about this and he shared with me a story that reduced me to tears when i heard it walter told me that when he first met his wife he saw her when they were in church together and he plucked up the courage to ask her please would you like to go on a date and she replied yes if you like we could go for a walk in the nearby park and so that afternoon that's just what they did walter said that 
They had a walk around the park, they had a lovely time together, and at the end of it, he asked if they could have another date. She said, well, we could have another walk around the park, perhaps next week. And they agreed on a time and a place. And she said to him, that's great. I'll wait for you just inside the gate. Well, the rest was history. Walter and his sweetheart got married and they lived a long and joyful life together, serving God and following the Lord. Eventually, sadly, she became very, very ill and she was finally taken into hospital where she was dying. Walter said that on the day that she passed away, she called for him and she spoke with him. And she held his hand and said to him very, very honestly, Walter, I'm dying. And then she asked him something that utterly bewildered him. She looked at him and said, Walter, will I ever see you again? And he was thrown by this. He said to her, my darling, we have spent all of our lives in the service of Jesus Christ. We know that his promises are true. How can you possibly ask me that? Will I see you again? We will be together again with him. And she looked at Walter and said, Walter, are you sure? And he was just amazed. He said, yes, I'm sure. I'm certain. I know his promises are true. I will see you again. And she held his hand and she said to him, Walter, I'll wait for you just inside the gate. His promises are true. The hope that he brings is no false hope. I pray that these few words and this reflection will be a blessing to you.